0: where we left off. Mark 9. We're, I'm going to read all 13, first 13 verses, but we're really only going to look at the first verse. I, I don't know what page that's on in the pew Bible. I forgot to put it in there in my notes. Uh, but when you find Mark chapter 9, I'm going to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. It says, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God when it has come with power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no laundry on earth could whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter responded and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know how to reply, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon this statement discussing with one another what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why is it the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first, and he restores all things. And yet, how is it written, the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it was written of him. title of the message this morning is, The Kingdom Coming in Power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We love you. We exalt you. We magnify you. We bow before you this morning, surrendering this time to you. Father, we do want your kingdom to come and your will to be done in our lives. We want you to rule and to reign in every part of our lives today. And we want you to make us into kingdom agents Father, as we go out into a lost and a dying world, that, Father, we can help extend your kingdom and see your rule and your reign expanded into Gaiman and the regions around us, Father. Oh, Lord, today open our hearts and minds to receive from your word. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. Let Holy Spirit come and take the word. Make it living and active to change us where we need to be changed. To convict us where we need to be convicted. To strengthen us where we need to be strengthened. To encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Just to do a mighty work in our lives so that we would be different as we go out of these doors than we were when we came in. Oh God, have your way. We ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So something to keep in mind as we read God's word is chapter and verse divisions are not part of the inspired text, right? Meaning when Mark sat down to write the gospel of Mark, he didn't start out by writing the gospel of Mark, chapter one, verse one. The chapter divisions were initially developed around AD 1227. The Wycliffe English Bible of 1832 was the first Bible to include the chapter divisions and nearly every Bible since has followed the example. The verse divisions came even later. The Old Testament was divided into verses around A.D. 1448 and the New Testament around A.D. 1555. The Geneva Bible was the first Bible to include both chapter and verse divisions and nearly every Bible since then has followed this example. Now, why am I telling you this, you may be asking? It's because Mark chapter 9 begins with the word and. And that would be a strange way to begin a new thought, a new idea, or a new story. And connects us at the beginning of Mark 9 to the end of Mark 8. Now, if you remember all the way back when we were last in Mark in November, the last part of Mark 8... Jesus told his disciples that when he went to Jerusalem, he would be rejected, he would suffer, he would die, and he would rise from the dead. Now, this statement shocked the disciples, none more than the apostle Peter, who took it upon himself to tell Jesus this would never happen to him. And Jesus' response to Peter, he gives what is likely the most well-known teaching on what it means to be his disciple. To be a disciple of Jesus, we must deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. Self-denial, cross-bearing, and following Jesus are so crucial that we forfeit our souls if we refuse to do any of that. Jesus then says, whoever is ashamed of him and his words will find that he, Jesus, is ashamed of them when he comes back in his glory. This is where we pick up. In verse 1 with and. It begins with and because it is a continuation or a part of the discourse in the last part of Mark 8. Jesus ends the discourse that began in Mark 8 by saying, There are some who are standing there who will not taste death. They will not die until they see the kingdom come with great power. And then the transfiguration begins to take place six days later. So these are two separate stories. So we're just going to focus on verse one. Now, he says they will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God when it has come with power. Now, that is a an enormous statement. And it would likely have been jarring and exciting to the original hearers, even though it may not mean much to us today. Well, this is our loss for not understanding the kingdom. The kingdom of God has a significant meaning in God's word. To those in Jesus' time, the coming of the kingdom of God meant an end of the current age that they were living in, and the beginning of the age in which God would rule and reign. The rule and reign of God would be made evident. The way they viewed the age was that it was the current age was currently characterized by sin, sickness, demon possession, and one in which evil and evil men triumphed. They believed when the Messiah came, those things would all come to an end and a new messianic age would begin. A time when the wolf would dwell with the lamb, as it stated in Isaiah 11 and 6. When we speak of the kingdom of God, we're talking about the place of the rule and the reign of God. A place and a time when God rules and God reigns and God's will is always done. The kingdom of God coming in power is essentially the heaven invading earth. It is the will of God being done on earth just as it will be and just as it is in heaven. It is God making things on earth as they will be in heaven. But to understand the kingdom and really how all of that applies, we've got to understand the, the big picture of God's word. Now, a lot of this is going to come as a reminder, just a kind of a reminder of all things we already know. We, we all are probably familiar That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that at the end of God's creation, He declared His world was very good. Genesis 1 and 31. And in Genesis 1 and 31, everything in this very good world, everything was exactly the way God wanted it to be. Humans had a perfect communion with God. Their relationship with each other was perfect, just as it should be. All of their needs were perfectly met. There were no lack. There was no hunger. There was no sickness. There was no strife. There was no death. There was no sin. There was no evil. They had a God-given purpose. They were to tend and keep the garden. There was no nothing in this very good world that wasn't very good. God was the king and His rule and His will were was perfectly followed. While all human needs were met in the garden, there was still a need for obedience to God. God was still God. The perfect relationship with God wasn't one of equals. He was still God. Adam and Eve were still his creation. Adam was warned. One tree in the midst of the garden was forbidden to him. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was also told there would be terrible consequences if he ate of this tree violating the one rule. That they would die. Things went well for a period of time. Until Satan came along and tempted Adam and Eve. To do what God had told them they must not do. To eat from the tree. in the middle And the knowledge of good and evil. They believed his lies. They ate fruit. And their disobedience had horrific consequences for humanity and creation. Everything about creation became broken on the day that Adam and Eve ate from the tree. The relationship between God and humans was severed. People were now born spiritually dead, separated from God. Creation itself was cursed. Thorns and thistles would grow, and it would be difficult to grow things out of the ground. Humans died spiritually, and they were born spiritually dead, separated from God. Physical death entered the world. Humans were born in rebellion against God. Humanity now walked a path of rebellion against God marked out by Satan. Ephesians 2.2 2. The natural state of humanity is one of children of wrath. Ephesians two three. Humans are naturally blinded by Satan to their deep need for Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. The entire world is under the sway of Satan, 1 John 5.19. Humanity struggles against evil spiritual forces, Ephesians 6.12. Satan roams the earth seeking someone to destroy, 1 Peter 5.8. In short, God's original purpose for the earth and humanity was short-circuited. The earth and the people of the earth were no longer very good. This began a horrendous cycle of sin and pain and disease and injustice and corruption and poverty and suffering and ruin and loss and death. All of which continues today. Everything wrong and broken in our world is wrong and broken because of Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion against God. But God had a plan and God gave a promise That one day a Messiah would come. And he would crush the head of the serpent. While the serpent would strike his heel. And he would set back aright everything that went wrong. And so the Old Testament begins to tell us about who the Messiah was. And what the Messiah would do. And what his kingdom that he would usher in would be like. And so... Israel in particular and humanity as a whole waited for centuries for this long concealed Messiah to arrive. And then Jesus came on the scene and he began preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. Now, he wasn't talking so much about a place as he was a time or as an experience. right? So he wasn't saying that there is this One region of the world, and this is the kingdom of God where God's rule and reign will be seen and the rest of the world wouldn't be. Instead, he was talking about that it would be in a particular moment in time or in a particular experience of seeing it happen in us or in the world around us. It's a time when God's rule and God's reign is perfectly seen and God's will is perfectly done. Or you could say it's an experience Of God's rule and God's will being perfectly accomplished. God's will being perfectly done means much more. Than people just doing what God says. Although that's clearly a part of it. In the kingdom when God's will is perfectly done. Everything is different. Because God's perfect and original plan for humanity. And creation is reestablished. And it is done. The kingdom of God. Will be a time when God's rule and God's reign, the kingdom comes. It will be a time when righteousness and justice prevails on the earth. Isaiah eleven four through five. A time when people will live in peace. Isaiah eleven two or Isaiah two two through four. It'll be a time where the fullness of the Spirit is experienced by the people of God. Joel two twenty eight through thirty. A time when the new covenant will be realized. Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 32. A time when the waste places of the earth are restored and made lush. Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 2 and verse 7. A time when there is no sickness or death. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. A time when sin will be done away with. Zechariah 13:1, Isaiah 53, 5. The kingdom is a time when God's original plans for creation and humanity will be restored. So Jesus came preaching the coming of the kingdom. But he also demonstrated what the kingdom would be like as he himself lived in the fullness of the Spirit. Matthew three, sixteen through four one, Luke four, one and two, and fourteen through twenty one. Jesus demonstrated what the kingdom would be like as he imparted the Holy Spirit to others. John 20, verses 22. As he healed the sick in many places, cast out demons, forgave sin, fed the hungry. Jesus' life and teaching and his ministry gave us a taste of what it would be like when the kingdom fully comes. Yet Jesus' teaching about the kingdom seemed to contradict itself at times. Sometimes he would say the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1 and 15 And at other times, Jesus' teaching made it clear the kingdom of God had not yet come, such as in Matthew 25. This is what scholars call the already or not yet, already not yet aspect of the kingdom. Already the king has come, but the king has not yet fully set up his kingdom. Jesus with his death or his coming, his death and his resurrection, he brought about the entrance of the kingdom. The kingdom of God coming in the world, it began with Jesus, but it has not fully been consummated, it has not fully arrived. Right now we live in a time of tension between the two. As I said, it's typically called already and not yet. Some things have already come, some things are yet to come. I refer to it as the the have come and is coming aspect for the purpose of hope and anticipation. To my way of thinking, saying not yet focuses on what God is not doing. But if we say it is coming, we're focused on what God is going to do. Reinforces hope and keeps our focus on God, His power, His goodness, and His kingdom. So for example, has come already, is imputed righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. When we come to Jesus, we are given His righteousness for our unrighteousness. What has already come is we have victory over sin. Romans 8, 12 says we have no obligation to do what our sinful nature desires. Already come, Satan is defeated. Colossians two fifteen says Jesus has conquered him and made a spectacle of him. Death has been defeated. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Healing is available. James 5, 14 and 15. We're told to pray for the sick that they might be healed. But there's also the the is coming, what has not yet happened. While we have imputed righteousness, we are not yet perfect, but we will be, according to Philippians three twelve, and Philippians one six. While we don't have to be slaves to our sin, we still struggle with our sin, but one day we won't, according to Galatians five seventeen and First John three two. While Satan has been defeated, he's still an enemy. But one day he will be destroyed in the lake of fire. Ephesians 6:10 through 12 details his work, and Revelation 20 and 10 talks about him being tossed in the lake of fire. While death has been defeated, we still die physically. But one day we will be resurrected to die no more. Hebrews 9:27 says it is pointed for man once to die. And then judgment. In John eleven, twenty five and twenty six, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and those who live and believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. While healing is available, we still get sick, but there is coming a day of total healing. James five, fourteen and fifteen talks about praying for the sick. Revelation twenty one four says there's a day when there is no sickness, there is no disease, there is no parting. All of this and more is what is meant by the kingdom of God. So when Jesus talked about people not dying until they see the kingdom coming with power. He's talking about people who would see God's kingdom come and God's will be done as the lost were saved, as prodigals were restored, as the sick were healed, as captives were set free, as broken hearts were bound up, as ruptured relationships were restored and much, much more. Jesus did all of these things in his ministry and the disciples saw it. They witnessed firsthand the kingdom breaking in to earth and people being set free. But the disciples did more than just see it. They were eventually allowed to take part in it. After Jesus died and rose again, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them at Pentecost And they began to do the same things Jesus did. They began to see the kingdom come with power. And God's will be done as the lost were saved. The prodigals were restored. The sick were healed. The captives were set free. Broken hearts were bound up. Ruptured relationships were reconciled. And much, much more. But here's where it gets to us. The kingdom coming in power did not end When the last apostle passed from the scene. The kingdom coming didn't end because the kingdom has not yet fully come. The kingdom is still coming in power. And you and I as disciples of Jesus are meant to be a part of the kingdom coming in power. The kingdom is still coming. And we as disciples of Jesus are meant to be a part of seeing the kingdom come in power. As Jesus works in us and through us and for us to save the lost to restore the prodigal, to heal the sick, to set captives free, to bind up broken hearts, to restore ruptured relationships, and much, much more. But to have this kingdom mindset requires a change of thinking for much of the American Christianity. Much American Christianity lives under what is called functional deism. Functional deism believes Jesus is real but doesn't believe he's really active in the world today in ways we can see. While they would readily accept Jesus can save their souls, there's a little concept of Jesus being able to solve the problems of their life. In this view, Jesus can do spiritual things like forgive sins or give life after death. Things that really aren't seen in the here and the now. Not experienced until you die. However, he really doesn't do Physical things like answer prayers in tangible ways. He really doesn't heal the sick now. He really doesn't set captives free now. He really doesn't bind up broken hearts now. He really doesn't rupture or reconcile ruptured relationships now. He really doesn't bring deliverance to people who are oppressed now. He really doesn't do much of anything now. He just saves souls, forgives sins, and we just sort of muddle through life as best we can. With that, with this functional deism comes an unhealthy skepticism of others experience of the kingdom coming in power that leads them to reject anything that's outside of their experience of their comfort zone as false. Someone who who could look at God's word and they could see all the things that. That God has done all the things that Jesus did, all the things the apostle did all the ways we're told to pray and for the kingdom to come and all of these kinds of things. And they could look at all of that and they could say, yes, all of that happened. That is real. It just doesn't happen today. God is different now. He doesn't work in those ways anymore. And they began to give you all of these reasons why the things that we see here can't happen here. Those people are functional deists. Now, to be fair, it's quite understandable in our culture. We are all products of the Enlightenment. The reality is we are all thoroughly secularists in our thinking. Secularist just means we don't believe in the supernatural. We are all thoroughly secularist in our thinking. It's just that every so often, occasionally... We can muster up faith and belief in the supernatural. But often it's only just enough to believe in a God who does spiritual things. But not quite enough to believe in a God who does physical things. But a proper kingdom theology will not allow for this. A proper kingdom theology understands Jesus meant what he said when he taught us to pray for the kingdom to come. And God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done, we are praying for God's rule and God's reign to be made evident in the world around us. We are praying for God's rule and God's reign to break into a particular situation for which we're praying. We are praying for God to physically, noticeably, legitimately intervene in the world and do something to make a difference. Something that only God can do. Now, we get messed up sometimes when we pray, though, for your will be done. I know I've often prayed about a situation and ended my prayer with something like, but let your will be done. And what I've meant when I've prayed this is, I don't know what God's will is in this particular situation or whatever happens must be God's will. Anybody else ever prayed that way? But what if I told you that in many, maybe even in most situations, we can know what God's will is? And what if I told you that not everything that happens is God's will? God has given humans a free will, enabling them to act in ways contrary to his desire, his will. And yet, in some ways that are hard to fully comprehend, God remains Sol- Solomon, sovereign and he ultimately accomplishes his will despite human resistance and rebellion. And in many ways, I think this is one of the ways we see the greatness of God. How great is our God? That he can allow humans to be free moral agents, to act in ways contrary to his will, and yet still accomplish what he wants to accomplish in the grand scheme of things. I think the church of Jesus Christ as a whole has become too accepting of things that are not God's will. Because the reality is some things are clearly not God's will. And despite this, we tend to accept them as God's will. We accept them as that's just how it is. Or we accept them as there's not really anything that can be done about it. That mindset is not a kingdom coming in power mindset. It is not a your kingdom come and your will be done kind of thought process. This is not what it is to live with expectation of the kingdom coming in power. When we live with anticipation of the kingdom coming in power, when we're praying for the kingdom to come and God's will to be done, we are praying for God to legitimately move and act on a situation and to do something right here and right now to show His rule and His reign in that situation. But how do we know God's will so that we can pray with that kind of confidence? How do, we, how do we know God's will so that we can anticipate the kingdom coming in power and we'll recognize it when we see it? Well, we, really, it boils down to knowing what God has said in His Word. God's Word perfectly reveals God's will. And so we can take what is in God's Word and we can compare it to a situation and we can say, yes, that is God's will or no, it's not God's will. And it's not arrogance and it's not speculation and, and it's not just making things up. It is a fact. It is not God's will. But let me show you two things. We only have time for two things. I could show you a hundred things. But two things in particular that are never God's will. Right. People enslaved to sin all, all around us. People are slaves to sin. Jesus said, those who sin are slaves to sin. Proverbs says that sin, when we do it, it becomes these ropes that entangle us and hold us captive. And this is not God's will. And yet we see people who live sinful lives. They live in ways contrary to what God has said is right. And what we tend to do if we're not careful is we say, well, that's just that's just how it is. And there's not really anything we can do. Even though this clearly is not God's will. Now, how do I know it is never God's will for someone to live in sin? The one who practices sin is of the devil. That's a strong statement. we don't have time for that. The devil has been sinning from the beginning, but here's what we're focused on. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came. To free people from being enslaved to sin. That was a huge part of his purpose was to destroy the works of the devil. Sin is the point it's talking about right there. So we can look at that. We could look at Jesus saying, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We can look at Romans 8.12 saying that those who are saved are not obligated to do what their sinful nature desires. And from that we can conclude it is never God's will for anyone to be enslaved by sin. Never. So again, this is huge. This has huge ramifications and implications for our life. If we as disciples of Jesus are personally enslaved by sin, that is not God's will. It is not God's permissive will. It is not God's determined will. It is not God's will at any point, in any way, ever. Jesus came to destroy that from our lives. So, there's both a challenge to this and a comfort in this. The challenge is, my sin is not okay. My sin is not God's will, no matter how peaceful I feel about it, no how comfortable I am in it, no matter how much I like it. It is not God's will. And I should not be okay with it myself. That's the challenge. The encouragement is, I don't have to live this way. I don't have to live enslaved by my base desires, whatever they may be. Jesus came to set me free, and I can be free indeed. Man, that's good news. That's an encouraging statement. So when we're looking for the kingdom to come with power, we're looking for people who are enslaved by sin to be set free from sin. When we're praying for the kingdom to come and God's will to be done, we're praying for people to be freed from being enslaved by sin. And we pray in confidence because this is God's will. It is God's will that they be set free. It is God's will that they not be enslaved by sin. God's will is this person would turn to Jesus and Jesus would set them free. And so kingdom mindset. We live with expectation of the kingdom coming with power. I don't have time to get into that, so I'll just move on with that thought. That's the mindset. Another example is people deceived by Satan. with a plurality of religions in our culture, the variety of ways people seek to be spiritual, the general interest in the occult that's ever growing around us. Again, it's very easy for us to conclude, well, that's just how it is. There's not really anything we can do about it. Even though people... Believing false spiritualities, believing things that are not Jesus, is not God's will. How can I be sure? Because Paul requested that prayers and intercession, thanksgiving be made on behalf of all people. And this idea of praying for them was good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It is God's will. For all people to know the truth. Now again there's huge implications for this. This means that non-Christian spiritualities are never God's will. This means that religions other than Christianity are never God's will. It is not God's will for anyone to believe any false doctrine. Or believe any false religion. Or have any sort of new age spirituality in their lives. It is never God's will. What is God's will is that they would be saved And come to the knowledge of the truth, which is Jesus. It is never God's will for anyone to be deceived by Satan. So, again, a challenge and an encouragement. If we struggle with believing Satan's lies and false spiritualities, we have hope in that. That that's not the way God wants it and we don't have to live that way challenge in that in many cases in many Christians life, many American Christians in particular, they like to to intermingle all manner of new age stuff and all manner of other things in with their Christianity and see how they they sort of harmonize and make it their own. That is never God's will. God's will is that we would know the truth and the truth is in Jesus Christ. So as we seek to to help people, we're going to encounter people who they they're they're spiritual, they're religious in some religion or another, and they're very happy in their religion. And we're going to be tempted to think, well, maybe that's God's will for them to be that. Maybe they found a path to God through that. They haven't. It is never God's will for anyone to be deceived by that. So as we. Try to see the kingdom come. We're, we're seeing people rescued. We want to see people rescued from false religions and false spiritualities and come to the knowledge of the truth in Jesus Christ. As we pray for the kingdom to come and God's will to be done. We're praying for people to be delivered from these sort of false beliefs that are keeping them away from Christ. We, we can and we should live with expectation of the kingdom coming in this kind of power. Because of time, we'll, we'll jump to the end. There's a bunch more I would love to go on with, but we don't have time for that. But God even has a will about the various cares of life that often crush people. I, I don't know if you know this, but life can be hard. Life's hard for all manner of reasons. But life can be hard and these cares of life can be crushing. And as we seek to understand what, what would be God's will in the midst of a crushing care of life. I thought about these words of Jesus. The thief comes only to steal, but I've come that they would have life and have it abundantly. I'm convinced this is a filter we can use to determine God's will in a specific situation. Satan comes for what purpose? Steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus came for what purpose? To give life in its abundance. Well, what does a comparison of these two purposes look like when seeking God's will about the crushing cares of life? I'll just show you, just talk about one in particular. And I want you to think about sickness. We've talked about healing this morning. Um, think about sickness. Now, what's God's will when someone is sick? I mean, really sick. I don't mean the flu or man flu. I mean, really sick, cancer sick. Well, this is tricky. Because the reality is, we, we have to go to heaven somehow. And to get to heaven, we either have to be alive when Jesus returns, or we have to die. Hebrews 9.27 makes it clear. It's appointed for man once to die. That means at some point, it is going to be God's will for each and every one of us to die. That will be God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And there is just no way to know how this is going to happen. And so no matter how much kale we eat or how much we exercise or what we do, there is no way to fend off death forever. It will come for all of us. But at the same time, James does teach us to pray for the sick to be healed. Jesus certainly healed the sick, and that's a part of what it means for the kingdom to come when sickness is done away with. So, certainly we pray for the sick to be healed. And I believe we should pray with expectation, believing God can heal. However, we do this with the reality that healing may not be God's will. But even with this, with healing not being God's will and it being their appointed time, we can be sure being crushed by the cares of life, even the cares of sickness and death, is not God's will. How do we know this? Well, Matthew 11:28 through 30 assures us we can find rest for our souls. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 assures us there is peace to guard our hearts. Rest and peace are always available through Jesus, regardless of what cares of life we're facing or how much pressure it exerts upon us. Let let me give you an example. Several years ago, my cousin Connie passed away and I was asked to be a part of her funeral. I want to read you some of what I said. When mom called me and told me that Connie had basically been consigned to hospice care, I remember thinking how tough that would be. We all know any day can be our last. I mean, any number of things could happen to us, and any given day could be our last. It's a tension we probably don't think much about, but we all have to live with. There's something different about knowing you're going to die. Knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt, someday soon, your life is going to end. Times like this, it would be easy to turn inward. To let the situation turn you into a person who's angry or bitter at God. Bitter at life. Maybe even at those who got to stay after you were gone. It would be easy in a time like this to turn inward and begin to feel sorry for yourself. To pity yourself because the hand life had dealt you. And honestly I think both of these responses are somewhat understandable. I think it's especially true if you have something to live for as Connie did. A husband she loved. Children whose life she was involved in. And grandchildren she wanted to see grow up. Yet despite this temptation that must have been there to respond in this way, Connie did not. Don't get me wrong, I'm sure there were times she struggled with this. But from what I can tell, this wasn't her normal way of life these last few months. She faced this time with grace and dignity. That's awesome. Not long ago, something happened that really reinforced this view to me. When mom told us about Connie, our family started praying for her. Every night during our family prayers, we would pray for Connie and the family. My oldest daughter is very sensitive about stuff like this and really worried about Connie and asked every day how Connie was doing. If I didn't know, she'd tell me I needed to call Nana and ask her. One day, Mom called from Connie's house and I told her to tell Connie that we were praying for her and that my girls, especially Caitlin, were really praying hard for her. Mom said she would and hung up. Not long after that, Mom called back and had a message For Caitlin from Connie. Connie wanted Caitlin to know she was going to die. But it was okay. She wasn't in pain. She wasn't afraid. When she died she would be with Jesus and her family who had gone on. Her reason for telling Caitlin this. Was she didn't want her to doubt God. When Connie died despite the fact Caitlin had prayed for her. Here she was dying, and rather than focusing on herself and her situation, she was worried about the faith of a little girl. We could wonder what it was that allowed Connie to respond like this, even toward the end of her life. But we know it was her faith in Christ. Mom told me not long ago there were several people over at Connie's house, and Connie wanted them all to gather and pray with her. And after everyone prayed... Connie was filled with the joy of the Lord and began to praise God and tell them how awesome and how great Jesus was. Connie wasn't old. She was only 67 years old when she died. She had been sick for several years before she was placed on hospice care. And even through her illness, it was long and it was drawn out and it was painful to watch. This care of life didn't crush her. She had rest and she had peace Because of Jesus. What God gave to Connie during this crushing care of life, He wants to give to everyone in the midst of the crushing cares of their life. If you're here under the crushing care of life, understand. In Jesus, there is rest and peace no matter what that care is. As we pray for people. Who are being crushed by the cares of life. We can pray confidently. It is Jesus' will. For them to have rest and peace. In him. When we pray for those who are sick. Or we have sick loved ones. not Not to be crushed under the cares of life. We are absolutely praying for the kingdom to come. And God's will to be done in this situation now. As it will in heaven. And we can live with expectation of the kingdom coming. With power. The Apostle Paul said, the kingdom of God is not in words, but in power. What I've talked about today is what we see in God's word. It's more than pretty. It's more than an encouraging sermon. It's more than just a bunch of words. It is the power of God able to do in us and through us and for us what we cannot do for ourselves and what no one else can do. There is no one else who can set us free. No one else who can lead us to truth. No one else who can give us an abundant life. No one else can give us rest and peace. Too often and for too long, we as disciples of Jesus have lived below what God offers us through His kingdom. May we live as citizens of the kingdom of God and heirs of that kingdom. Let's embrace this as right And real. And begin to live with expectation. Of the kingdom coming with power. Let's begin to pray for God's will to be done. And God's kingdom to come. Right now. In whatever situations we face. And it to be done on earth. As it will in heaven. Now. With this. Everything we've talked about. This isn't just something we look for in others. Or we pray for in others. It is also something that can come and should come in our lives. So with this in mind, I want to close with some questions. Are you free from sin? Are you enslaved by sin? Listen, habitual sin is slavery to sin. That's what God's Word says. If you are habitually involved in a particular sin, you are a slave to that sin. Jesus came to set you free. Do you know the truth? Or have you embraced some lies? The truth is Jesus and that salvation is found in Him alone. Everything else is lies. It's pretty easy on that one. If you've mixed your Christianity with some New Age spiritualism, you've embraced lies. If you've embraced salvation through faith alone and Christ alone, with do good and be good and go to heaven, you've embraced lies. The truth is there is salvation in no one but Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and everything rises and falls on Him. You can be set free from those lies and live in the truth of Christ. Is your life marked more by theft, death, and destruction, or abundant life from Jesus? Theft, death, and destruction, that's the work of the devil. Abundant life is the work of Christ. Do you have rest and peace? Or do you live in a constant state of inner turmoil? Rest and peace is God's will for His children. And it is available to you regardless of whatever crushing care of life is upon you. Let us not hear this and believe the lies that say we can't be free. We can't live in the truth. We can't have the abundant life. We can't have rest and peace. Jesus, I promise you, is greater than what enslaves you, what lies you've embraced, and what crushing care of life is upon you. Believe him. Believe it's right. Believe it's real. Pray for it to come in your life and expect the kingdom to come with power. Let's stand.